evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. Mahoning Drive-In Radio, your old friend Virgil back once again for another riveting episode of Mahoning Drive-In Radio. That's right. And I got two co-hosts with me, the three-headed beast today. Myself, Jeff, say hi. Hi. And we got Mark in the house. Hello. All right. And we we got a little smorgasbord for you guys of topics, some things all over the map, but some really fun, really informative stuff. And we're going to pick Jeff's brain a little bit too. Mark, why don't you jump into things and let people know what we've been up to? Well, since we last spoke, a month or more has gone by. Our last two podcasts, if you're listening to these in order, not that you really need to, we talked about the whole Save the Mahoning scenario, <laughs> fracas thing that went on, and uh, Joe Bob's Jamboree. And since then, we've had multiple shows, and we've had all kinds of things going on, and we may touch upon some of those. We wanted to let everybody know, once again, that if you are not aware, we have a Patreon that helps us you know, keep the lights on and the projectors running at the theater, and there are three tiers, and in exchange for those various monthly contributions you can get various things including exclusive episodes of this very podcast where we answer patreon questions or talk about subjects that we don't normally talk about on this podcast and uh, we also have the ability while i'm talking about all that stuff and it's it's patreon.com forward slash mahoning driving also if you want to leave us a voice message you can do that if you go to our page on anchor.fm forward slash mahoning drive-in there's a button that says message and you can leave a voice message for us that we will play on the air. And if it's, it can be anything. It can be a question. It can be a drive-in memory you had or your favorite movies you've seen at the drive-in, really anything. And uh, we're going to play one of those a little bit later in the show, but I wanted to upfront remind people that they have that option. So back to you. I love that. And we love the podcast. Like, like we always say, this is an extension of what we do, an extension of our personalities. And in a lot of ways, uh, a kind of a therapeutic outlet for all of us. We get to break away from the theater and, uh, and catch up on a lot of things. So We get to talk about the theater on the rare days that we're not at the theater. Yes. So I think a really great topic for us to talk about is our Spaghetti Sunday series, which has been so much fun. For those of you guys not in the know, we did uh, special screenings on Sunday nights themed in the Spaghetti Western. We served spaghetti. Beth came up with a special in the stand. And of course, we played Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more and topped it off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we were so excited about the culmination with this good, bad, and the ugly screening because we had built up a nice audience with the previous shows. Uh, how do you, would you guys have good memories of those those first two spaghetti Sundays? Those first two were great. Uh, yeah, the, the prints were gorgeous. The weather was gorgeous. Uh, the front row was loaded with like just super fans of spaghetti westerns, and we had trailer reels from Harriet Exhumed that were all fairly obscure uh, spaghetti western trailers, and people were like really excited and you know noting down the films they hadn't seen before. And uh, they were just, they were wonderful. I mean, my memory of, of those movies is, uh, I love that it's on Sunday because for me, Sunday was the day the local Boston stations would run Westerns and the Spaghetti Westerns. So that's how I always saw those. So to finally see those on the big screen on pristine prints, feeling like it was, you know, the mid 60s or something, it was, it was pretty great. Yeah, breathtaking. 
they were in beautiful condition. Uh, the last time I ran them, which was many years ago, they hadn't reprinted them yet. I was using the original prints, if you will, from when the films were made, and they were all scratched and spliced, and they were terrible, but these uh, reprints were beautiful. I think I noticed in one of the prints, at least, it was, as you say, it was a newer print, but I think it also featured a newer sound mix. Like it might've been remixed for stereo or surround for theaters as they did with one of the DVD editions because some of the sound effects sounded a little off to me. Like they sounded a little crisper than the rest of the film, if that makes any sense. Uh, maybe they were trying That's to add- very well could be. Maybe yeah. they were trying to add directionality to it or something like that. I mean, it didn't really take, it's just something I noticed. It didn't really take me out of the movie at all. Yeah, and tons of suggestions, too, from people. Everybody, once we started Spaghetti Sunday, they came out of the woodwork. You know what Western you should play. You know what Spaghetti Western you should play. So uh, we consider this definitely a, a successful venture. We want to do as many of these Spaghetti Sundays moving forward as we can. And uh, we certainly have some plans for some more. But let's focus on this good, bad, and the ugly screening. So originally we had it booked on August 15th and I went to the social medias because I totally screwed up and missed an email and actually didn't have it confirmed. So the week of the screening, Robert's like, hey, where's the, where's the print? And Jeff's wondering, where's, what's happening with the print? And I reached out and he's like, well, you never confirmed it. And I'm like, what an idiot. So I went to the social medias and I told people, I screwed up, we're still gonna show a film out of our archive, which ended up being Jurassic Park and an amazing event. But I felt so bad because we didn't want to shortchange this show with it being the good, bad, and the ugly, the culmination of the trilogy, and making a big deal about it being on its original 35 millimeter format. And uh, we weren't gonna be able to get that. So we pushed it back two weeks. And tell them what happened, Jeff. We, we got the print, but... But it was a work print. It was not a release print. It was a work print. And what that means is they had chopped it down from CinemaScope. And CinemaScope is the theater term for widescreen. They had chopped it down to a square picture like a television. And they did that because they wanted to make 16 millimeter prints, which are square, like the old television pictures. So it was a work print to make 16 millimeter square picture prints. But from years of use, it had faded to red. So not only was it not widescreen, it was chopped down, plus everything had faded to the red end of the spectrum, which is what happens to old film. And it was almost beat red. Yeah, It was horrible. I think somebody pulled that by accident because nobody in their right mind would have sent that to a theater because in my mind, it was unwatchable. And that would have, to talk about the era that print must have come from, it was back when 16 millimeter prints were still being struck. So that had to have been late 60s, somewhere in the 70s, probably. Yeah, and maybe even a little bit later. But still, I mean, you're talking about when televisions had square pictures. Right. That hasn't been for quite a while either. And in some people, when they heard the term work print, they got excited thinking that meant this is what Leona used to to cut the movie and it would have, you know, missing or alternate scenes or dialogue. Yeah, not this is a different kind of work print. Um, right. This is strictly taking a feature release and chopping it down to fit television and then making prints which is what radio which is what television stations used to run way back then before video were 16 millimeter prints that's what that was for so that also tells you how old it is so it was probably only half of the image that you've ever seen if you've watched this film in widescreen which is how most of us have seen it in the last few decades right so i, I liked what you did 
can you, if you can tell the folks who weren't there what the solution was and how we presented the film on the night. Yeah, I wanted to show them what it actually looked like so they would understand why we decide to run it digitally. Uh, so I ran one reel of the film. I think it was reel three. Yeah. And you could see it was beat red. The picture was totally square, had no width at all to it. Plus, it was probably a pan and scan. And it didn't even fit the aperture plate correctly. In other words, when there was a close-up of somebody on the screen, the top of their head was chopped off and the bottom of his chin was chopped off, which tells you again, it was not cut correctly. It just was basically a wreck. Yeah, it was it was an amazing moment, Jeff, because, you know, you, you've obviously shown me so much over the years. But with this situation, I was heartbroken and almost didn't want to believe that uh, we didn't get the right print. Because after all that yeah. hubbub with canceling the show, making a big deal about it being a nice print that we were going to be getting. And then we end up getting something that's not. And Jeff was able to really give people what I say is, is like a, it's like a film school moment where we not only did he show what was wrong with it, he spoke over it for a good maybe 10 minutes and gave the audience the insight on why we had to make this decision, which if you guys saw behind the curtain, you would know it is not an easy decision for us. I mean, Mark will tell you, I was heartbroken that we couldn't run this, uh, this print, but that's what we're dealing with, I think, here with running 35 millimeter is sometimes these things are going to happen. We know they're going to happen, so we got to be prepared for them and not take it personally. But uh, yeah, one customer who actually used to run a drive-in himself came up afterwards and he said this was one of the greatest presentations I've ever seen. The picture was perfect. He had his headphones on, so he got the full surround sound reworked soundtrack. It was it was perfect. And that's exactly what we wanted to kind of calm the wave. Correct. Like we always say, we only run digital when we have to. We always go for 35 millimeter first. But in that case, the print was such a wreck. I mean, you couldn't enjoy that. It was great for educational purposes, but there's no way we could have run the whole thing. And that's why we have that digital booth. You know, people ask about it and we do, we never want to just run the Blu-ray. It's always out of a last resort. And this was a prime example where by the time that print showed up, we couldn't source another one from anywhere in a matter of a day or two. And, you know, the, we had the Blu-ray, so we had to do that. We tried to warn everybody we, as, as much as we could who was coming out specifically to see it on film. Sometimes you can't reach everybody via the normal methods, unfortunately. I did see this film on 35 and it's, this is one of those things where I say a couple of years ago, and then you do the math and it's probably a couple of decades ago, but when they did the 50th anniversary re-release where they added the additional scenes back in and they had Wallach and Eastwood like redub their voices because they never had recorded those English looping for those scenes. I saw that. So I presume that's what we were getting, but I think it was just, it was like Jeff said, it was a screw up and we got the wrong thing. So I'm hoping we can source a really nice IB tech print that I know is out there and maybe next season or the season after do it properly on 35. It's not like people won't show up again for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah. It was magic. You know, it's it's one of those films and one of those series and one of those filmmakers that really opened my eyes to uh, the world of cinema. I said it. I was on the mic for uh, the good, bad, and the ugly. And I, I said it. It was my entree into foreign film, which it's weird to kind of consider this a foreign film. But I started exploring after this. 
this blew my mind so much that I started digging into, you know, the French New Wave stuff and being more accepting of a film that may have subtitles, you know, at an age when that was not necessarily hip, you know? My entry to foreign film might have been Godzilla. <laughs> I think for yes, a generation, yeah. it might have been. It was probably Godzilla and spaghetti westerns. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes total sense. And, uh, you know, for us, the idea of playing Westerns in general is such a sweet spot for all three of us that this series will keep going. And uh, the theater's growing more and more that we'll be able to take those swings more and more. But there's definitely some goods on uh, on our list. For me, Outlaw Josie Wales, where are you guys at? Oh, that, that would be excellent. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, I lean more toward when you say Westerns to me, I immediately think spaghetti Westerns. I was never interested in like the classic Westerns. I'm open to them now, but as a kid, they just didn't interest me. The spaghetti Westerns hooked me with their style and their their weirdness and the music. And then from there, you know, Eastwood started making his own movies. What you know, what he learned from Leone and, and, and Don Siegel and all that. And yeah, Outlaw Josie Wales is killer. I know there's a Prince because I've seen it. Uh, any almost any of his Westerns are solid. You know, right up to like Unforgiven. You know, there's so many Clint's. Oh, yeah. We could always go the John Wayne route, too. I think we should. I think we should throw up a classic John Wayne of what you think of as classics. Some some John Ford, John Wayne stuff. Um, exactly. John so Ford. Yeah. John Wayne. Uh, Howard Hawks, I think, did a few Westerns. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And I mean, John Wayne was great. He made a couple of turkeys, but most of his Westerns were very good. And seeing, you know, Monument Valley on that screen, seeing yes. seeing Westerns on that screen, if you haven't somehow been out to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, we it's very, very rural where we are. You know, you see on a clear night, the sky is filled with stars. There's no light pollution uh, unless, you know, a helicopter takes off at the airport nearby. Uh, and next door on the other side of the trees from us is people who have cows. So, so you could watch a Western and hear... <laughs> authentic cows nearby <laughs> the number of conversations in the old days when i was an attendee and i'd be in the front row talking with friends during the day and you'd be in the middle of some film related conversation and you'd hear it would just stop us cold and we would say i would say you know that's either a cow being being pleasured or killed right now i can't quite tell yeah that's about it and last night um i got there after the movie had started so i parked my car out at the out at the ticket booth uh, because I don't like coming in the field when the movie's running and having my headlights roam around the field. So I was walking back to my car last night after the film was over and most people were gone. And the sky, like you said, was just full of stars. It was beautiful. I mean, it's a gorgeous place for a drive-in theater. I mean, I always said, yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere, but when it's dark out there, it's beautiful. And it's especially effective if we ever show a film that's set in outer space because it's yes. like it's like the star field on screen just goes up and doesn't stop. Yeah, right. As you leave the theater, folks, please be careful. Don't let this happen to your car. Be sure to remove the speaker before you leave. If you should accidentally pull a speaker loose, please turn it in at our snack bar or box office. Thank you. One thing I wanted to talk about was drive-in speakers. We recently got... Uh, an amazing gift from a company I've followed for years and admired and drooled on my computer screen or phone over called Detroit Diecast. And they make uh, they make drive-in speakers. They make new drive-in speakers for the home or for outdoors. 
And uh, because of who we are and what we do, the owner uh, bestowed upon us this gorgeous, gorgeous item that is basically a, set, a pair of classic drive-in speakers on a pole, but built into them are um, the ability, it's the remote controlled for volume and function. They are Bluetooth, so you can play something from your phone through these drive-in speakers. They can tune into a radio frequency, so we use them in our snack bar now to pump out the sound from either the pre-show DJ or the movies, and they have a USB slot. So you could jack it in with MP3s and play on that. And they come on their stand, they chart. The unit itself charges, and I guess it holds a charge for about five hours. So you could theoretically take this outside and uh, the speakers are wired to the pole, classic style. So you could put this between two vehicles and use it like you normally would. So we thank Detroit Diecast endlessly for that and encourage people to go and check out what they've got. Um, I've wanted something of theirs for years. And also, this leads to a discussion of drive-in speakers. When was the last time, Jeff, if you know, the Mahoning actually had speakers still on the lot that functioned? Middle 80s, around 84. Um, I'd say 84, 85 is when they disappeared. And I always tell people, because sometimes people ask me in the booth, and then I mention it on the microphone when my, I do my introduction. The only thing missing from our drive-in that's not original are the speakers. They were taken out in the mid 80s. And I tell everybody, believe me, if they'd have been there when I got there, they'd still be there. But they were already gone, unfortunately. Now in the booth, there are above your desk, there are two like control panels. Is one of those something to do with the speakers or were they just the row lights? No, they both were. The one has three switches on it. Uh, you could cut out a third of the field with each switch or turn them on. And then the other control panel has the individual rows so if you had a speaker short out and it took out the whole field because it was shorted out you could turn that row off where the and then the rest of the rows would work again so you could you know anytime you had a speaker short out all you had to do was count go out and count what row is it in and back then they probably still had the row lights that's another thing unfortunately that's missing and you say oh it's row 11 so you'd reach over and kill row 11 and then everybody else could hear again so um, it was kind of neat the way they did that. And I know Detroit Diecast makes something, the thing I've most had my eye on, they make individual speakers with like an antenna that sticks out of them. So you can tune it into, you know, the drive-in that you're at and just like hang it on your window or your chair or something like that. Well, here's another little education and maybe we can talk about this. I always tell people when I have the money, I'm going to put a couple of rows of speakers back in. Here's the problem. Number one, they have to last for two shows, maybe sometimes three. That's one problem. And the second problem is, how are you going to replace the batteries in all those speakers? I mean, it would be uproariously expensive. I, I, I love the idea. I mean, man, I just wish we could do it, but I don't think technology is quite there yet. Yeah, we'd have to go back to almost the original way that they did it, which really makes no sense now to just run wire to every single pole and you know have well, that all be connected by wire and hope that people don't drive off yeah there are some drive-ins that still have a row like i've heard about certain drive-ins that they'll like like the back row has them like so if you if you get there early and you want to have a speaker you can get them but i i don't remember the last time i was at a drive-in that i frequented that had speakers i think it was probably sometime in the late 90s some of them have poles, but I don't see speakers really at many at all. Probably because people will just take them. They're valuable. You yes, know? That's, another, that's another problem. 
I had kind of figured out a fix for that. All you have to do is run a chain along with the uh, speaker wire. Just run a chain right next to it that, that came yeah. broken. That would take care yeah. of that. I love the old uh, intermission clips warning you to take your speaker, replace the speaker on the pole and not lose a, win a window. And my mother told me that she went to a drive-in once, probably back in the 60s, and somebody drove off not realizing a speaker was still attached and their window just sh shattered. So they lost a... I, I, I presume yeah. drive-ins probably had a business card for local glass repair places that they would hand out. <laughs> they, they were best friends. Yeah, You want to go to Ted's tomorrow. And I'm sure it didn't do the speaker any good either. No. <laughs> I thought there was some speaker technology that, that where the speaker would like disconnect if from the pole. I thought I heard about that. Maybe that was a very specific short-lived thing. Maybe at some point they came along and put in plugs instead of hard wiring yeah. them. Uh, the thing with the Mahoning is the wires are still there. They're still underground. They're there. But you would have to trench them up and then a either replace them or repair them. But, they, but they're still yeah. there. But yeah, I know a lot of them have the poles, which are still place setters for cars and things like that. But I mean, what Rich does, and like like you said, Mark, huge shout out to Rich and his his wife who have taken the love of the drive-in culture into their heart so much that they they built a thriving business off of it. And these are as much as he does replica speakers, but he also refurbishes original speakers. And I had reached out to him about getting a speaker right around the time that. Uh, the whole news of the land sale broke. And uh, of course he was following what we were doing and he came across the email after the, the land thing had, had been saved. And he was just so gracious and beautiful on the phone about how much he appreciates what we're doing and where our heart is and, you know, really why he got into his business. And now that he's getting older, he's, uh, he's looking to either expand or, or um, uh, pass on his business. But he said it, it really does remind him of, of why he got into business um, to begin with, you know, that, that love and that passion. And when it came time to get the bill for this thing, like Mark said, he, he said, look, the, the good part is I'm donating this to your cause. And uh, it, it is, it's so moving. It's that type of stuff when people come um, out of the woodwork to show their appreciation. But in this case, I didn't even think it was possible because Rich's normal deal is these things are Bluetooth, which our uh, super fan and uh, master carpenter, John Demmer has those uh, speakers from Detroit Diecast. And whenever he comes on the lot, he sets them up but he's limited. He can only play his uh, from his phone, the Bluetooth. So for him to uh, find a way to do not just the Bluetooth, but the FM to catch our, our station is is pretty magical. So huge shout out to Rich and his lady for all that love. And I think when you when you think about iconic images of the drive-in, it's the screen, it's fogged windows, it's the screen and the speakers. You know, I think everybody always asks about speakers. Speakers are so coveted when anybody has them, if they bring them to a drive-in to show off. And I know fans of drive-ins um, collect the various styles of speaker. Like I, I kind of ooh and awe when I see photos of the different shapes they had and the different other RCA had a brand and they would often, sometimes the drive-in would have its logo stamped into the speaker too. 
Um, the one we have from Detroit Diecast, I wasn't sure if they were refurbished or new until I looked and it said Detroit Diecast, you know, in the metal, uh, which is very metal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, I just, yeah, I just love the various styles. I have one that came from a drive-in in Rutland, Vermont that was being sold that had, you know, long gone out of business. And it's just, it's always cool to just have that piece of history and think about how many films over how many decades had their sound pumped out through those little <laughs> glorified tin cans. Yeah, Motiograph speakers are cool because they're round. Yes, I've seen those. Yeah, they're really neat. Yeah, or even the 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 ramp lights, you know, the row um, markers. There's all different styles of those. I know that once you got into that kind of space age, popular space age, all sorts of things where, you know, they'd look like UFOs at the end of the rows and yeah. It's just fun. You know, again, that's that dips the toe into the culture. Now, that row light that we have in our snack bar, did that come from the Mahoning or somewhere else? No, that came from the Super Skyway Drive-In in, in uh, Coonsville. You know, Virgil, where I took you, my favorite drive-in, that row marker, that row light is from, oh, yeah. that row light is from the Super Skyway. Yep. Yeah, it's funny because we went to go see, well, it's not funny. It's actually heartbreaking, but we went to go see that property and it's, it's almost like they, they took the screen down and then just walked away. It's the full open field still. Nothing's developed on it. It's wild. The snack bar still there? No, no. The snack bar, everything, the cement pad is probably yeah. still there. Yeah. But the building, the ticket booth, the screen are all gone because they were going to develop it. Then it fell through and it closed, oh, I think in the mid 80s. And uh, I had just happened to be driving by it one day and I knew it had been closed for several years. So I drove on there and, um, you know, found uh, the, the building wide open. Nothing was locked anymore. Everything was vandalized. And uh, a few years later, everything was torn down. So and it fell through. So now it's just an open field. You could actually put another drive in there it would be no problem. It's unreal location, too. It's kind of right on a, you know, perfect uh, access way to get in there and everything. Oh, yeah. If it was open now, it'd be doing business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where we went when I was little. I mean, we went to all of the Allentown area drive-ins, but that's the one we went to most often. Oh, yeah. Yep. You have your uh, your infamous uh, birthday story was from the Super Skyway, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, they actually let uh, my parents and myself on the lot early for my birth. I think it was my eighth birthday, I think. And the movie was uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they let us on the lot early. So we had like a picnic lunch and hung around and then everybody else started coming in. And, uh, so it was, it was really a great afternoon and a great evening. It was fantastic. <laughs> Please, we're doing all we can for you. We're trying to bring you back down to normal size. You do think I'm a freak, don't you? But you know, to me, you're the freak, the one who's different. I'm not growing. You're shrinking. <laughs> he started as a normal human being. But now each day he doubles in size. Where will it stop? The amazing colossal man. Colonel, he's been reported in Las Vegas. Impossible. How can he walk 120 miles in only an hour? Impossible. Not when you're 60 feet tall. The amazing colossal man. Well, I know that, you know, kind of snowballing from the good band the ugly screening and the condition of the print and all that stuff i know that mark wanted to talk a little bit about some of your experiences jeff with film damage type of damage what you can really work with a wall that you hit where all of a sudden it's like this is unplayable 
So Mark, what do you got for that? So I, I was wondering, I mean, I've witnessed various types of film damage over the years on and off the lot. And you've got all kinds. You've got sprocket damage. You've got water damage. You have creased film. You have uh, film that has vinegar syndrome. And I just wanted to sort of jump into that and, and talk about that stuff for folks who may be aware of it and may not be. For, so like to you, what is the worst thing? What's the, the hardest to deal with? Like, how do you how do you deal with each of those types of print damage? And what is the one that's that's almost a deal breaker when you see it? The one that's almost a deal breaker is sprocket damage because that's the way the film moves through the projector. That's the only way it moves through the projector. And if you have a lot of sprocket damage, you know, a little tiny bit here and there, a frame or two. Well, first of all, you usually cut the frames out if they're that bad. If it's repairable, a frame or two doesn't matter. You repair the sprocket damage with uh, splicing tape and you move on. But if it goes on for like a foot, two feet, it would take so much splicing tape to repair the damage you just can't do it because the splicing tape goes across the whole piece of film. So then you would see all this splicing tape and it would change the focus plane slightly of the film with the splicing tape going over it. So you'd have a foot or two, if you did do it, of where the film's going in and out of focus because there's always pieces of splicing tape running through it. Right. So it gets to the point where you either, either cut out a couple feet of film or you say it's unplayable, especially if a whole reel is like that. There's no way. On earth you're going to repair something like that it's four sprockets per frame and if you're more than one is damaged it's not going to go through the projector right yeah now if you get film that's warped that basically just causes the the focus to breathe does it not yes so what you want to try to do is set the lens where it's kind of at an intermediate point where when it warps one way, okay, it's a little out of focus. When it warps the other way, it's the same amount out of focus uh, if you're going to wind up playing it. Film warpage doesn't bother me too much because usually the out of focus isn't that bad. When it gets bad enough that it's unwatchable, it probably won't run through the projector either at that point because it's so warped, it, it just flies right off uh, the sprockets. It'll fly right off the sprockets. But... Um, yeah, warpage can be a problem uh, when focus is concerned. So you have to kind of set it in the middle and hope for the best. Now, if you had creased film, is is that ever very much of the film, like a very long length? I know I've seen it with like when I was transferring home movies years ago, if there's like a crease down the center. Yes, I've had films where they're creased. If they're only slightly creased, the pressure of the film pads as it goes through the projector will flatten it out. That's if it's a minor crease. If it's a major crease, you kind of have to sit there and like crease it the other way in order to take the crease out of it to make it flat again. You kind of have to bend it. And that's okay if the film is still young and has some flexibility, yet you can do that. If it's an acetate film and it's older and you try to crease it the other, it'll snap right in two. So you have to be really careful. But there are instances where you can correct it and still run the film. And there are instances where because the film is old and it's brittle, you just can't do anything with it. Now, vinegar syndrome, if people don't know what that is, that is when a film sort of just breaks down over time to its its basic elements, uh, it, it can get very warped, it can stick to itself, and it gives off a very, very strong acidic odor, similar to vinegar. Have you had much experience with having to run prints that have gone vinegar? I have, I have run prints that have gone vinegar, as they say, because 
they're not so sticky yet that they stick inside the projector. A, a very slight amount of stickiness won't screw things up real bad. When it gets real sticky, it can start to jam in the projector. And then, of course, the film rips and it breaks and, you know, or it jams up and the film stops, it burns a hole through it. You know, when it gets to that point, it is no longer runnable. But if your film only has slightly vinegar syndrome, it may last a couple of years yet. You know, it, it's a gradual thing over time. Once it gets to the point where it won't run through the projector anymore, well, obviously it's garbage. You have to throw it away. And does that leave behind, does that cause you to have to, like I know in my case, when I would run, again, old home movies, 16 stuff, um, sometimes the film would be a little sticky. I'd run it anyway, but then like the entire innards of the projector would be sticky and you'd have to clean it. Exactly, yes. You would have to go and clean it uh, after every reel just about. Because once the... Uh, the uh, emulsion starts coming off the film and building up in the projector if you don't clean it between every reel the next time you run it's going to build up some it's just going to fly right off the sprockets again and just cause a mess so yeah after you run a reel of uh fairly bad vinegar film you've got to clean the projector yeah and we've we've seen i don't know that it's ever been anything we've really run for the public but we've seen reels that have had water damage uh, reels, the film itself has been somehow, I, I don't even know how water damage exists unless something is sitting in really bad dampness. Um, and, it, and it looks like almost mold on the film or like flashes of white. It, it looks like something is alive. Like I, I always said it was sort of like yeah. a white flame licking out from the edge. We ran a print that we acquired privately at a staff party and it was really badly water damaged. I mean, what do you do about that other than just say <laughs> it's too gross looking to show? Once a film gets wet, film uh, and water are like gasoline and fire. Poof. Uh, once a film gets wet, it becomes very sticky. Now, if you give it a chance to dry out, once it dries out, it will no longer be sticky. But you have the damage left behind, which is the water, when it was there, dissolved the emulsion. So that's why the film looks like it has dissolved. It looks all the colors have run together. You know, in some cases, you have it looks almost white because all of the emulsion was eaten off of it from the water. And in that case, you can run the film once it's completely dry, it won't be sticky anymore, but you're gonna have parts of the picture obviously missing or uh, very badly distorted because the emulsion has actually run and then re-dried in a different spot. So you don't wanna get a film wet. Humidity, um, humidity is usually not a problem. On platters, they used to be, but humidity also, if it's like, you know, 90% humid outside, you know, like a, the middle of summer, sometimes the film will stick to itself so badly because there's so much condensation that it's unrunnable. And there's nothing wrong with the film, but it won't run because it's so sticky. It just jams up. Uh, I haven't had that happen in many years, but um, it can happen. But that's the whole point. you got to keep a film away from water. It gets rained on. Sometimes you get a film and you go, well, what's this? It was rained on and then it dried. Do you have these spots all over it? If somebody has it like uh, that nice film collection we got for 800 bucks, the yep. price was right. We still have to determine if most of them are watchable. We know a couple of them are. Uh, but there, they sat in water. They were in a basement that flooded. And so that's how they got water damaged. So it's crazy. And that's where our uh, very, very minor plug for Patreon here. We have these uh, monthly screenings for our top tier members. And most of what we run during those screenings are, are films from that collection that we got. I refer to it as our grindhouse print collection. 
to get the idea across that they're not in great shape. Uh, but we do inspect them before we run them. And, and sometimes if there's very, very minor damage, we'll run those and let people know. But part of the reason I chose to do these screenings with those prints is to find out what's usable out of those. And sadly, there was a film I really enjoy in that collection that just was so badly water damaged, you, you just can't run it. No, you're talking about Savage Sister. Yeah, we ran it at a staff party and one of the, it was actually wet coming out of the can, if I recall. And one of the reels was so bad, you couldn't run it. Right, two reels out of three, out of five. Uh, the other three reels are okay. There's two out of them that are just unrunnable. They're so badly stuck together, it's, it's just never going to dry out. So the majority of the films we receive still from studios or collectors come in the old standard, big, heavy, ramshackle film cans on metal reels. Right. right. Sometimes those look like they've been run over by a truck because they probably have. How often does that result in print damage and issues? I haven't seen that very often. The steel cans are very rugged. And yeah, that's the problem is when they, they get hit hard, they look like, how could that film ever survive? We had one yeah. last year, we had one last year or the year before that looked like it had been dropped off of a forklift or something. I mean, it was so badly dented. When I opened it, I thought there's no way this film we could barely even get the can open. It was so dented. Right. And I figured there was going to be film damage. There's no way this thing is going to run. But it bent the can and it bent the reels inside a little bit. But believe it or not, the film was not damaged. I was I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. It was amazing. So uh, we were able to run it. And I think we even managed to get the lid closed so that we could send it back again. But yeah, I, that thing was a mess. Those things can take a beating, though. Like you said, Mark, they probably could get run over by a truck and still still survive. They're beasts. They're absolute beasts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any any advantage in terms of sh of um, stability or shipping or long-term storage of plastic versus metal reels or cans? Because sometimes we'll get films on plastic reels and in those blue plastic shipping containers. Right. The blue plastic is a really great idea because, number one, number one it's a one-piece molded case. It can sit in the rain and the film will be fine or it can sit on a flooded floor and nothing will happen to the film because it's a one piece molded can. The steel cans are crimped at the bottom and uh, probably spot welded. Well, water can get in the crimps and, you know, and damage the film, which is what happened to that collection we bought several years ago. Whereas those blue plastic cases, which look exactly like the steel ones, but they're yeah. just made out of plastic, those they can sit on a flooded floor and the film won't get hurt because it's one piece. So water can't get in. So that was a great invention. I mean, as far as plastic goes, that's a great idea. And the plastic reels, no, that the great thing there is that they can't be bent like the old steel ones could be. And then you have to either take the bend out of them so you can use them or you've got to replace them entirely. The only time plastic is a problem if they got real hot somewhere and they warped or something, yeah. then they can be a problem. But normally they're not. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The plastic reels are referred to as shipping reels, and they wouldn't really send the metal reels in the cans, right? No, there were metal shipping reels. Those are those uh, shipping reels that um, look kind of plain. They're not house reels like are in our compartments. They look yeah. kind of plain, but there were steel shipping reels. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and you would think that those plastic cans are are much lighter there's not much of a difference they're still so heavy it's what's inside that counts that film is heavy yeah, stuff exactly uh it's yeah. mostly the film that makes the weight yeah the plastic doesn't do much for you even the steel shipping reels were lighter than house reels they weren't that thick they were very thin but yeah most of your weight is the film itself 
These are the sounds of six feet of silver death. In the hands of the dragon, it becomes the ultimate weapon of defense. The dragon is back in the greatest martial arts film of all time, Blood of the Dragon. The action is non-stop as one man, one weapon, are pitted against an incredibly powerful army of ruthless killers. Blood of the Dragon introduces to the screen Asia's superstar, Wang Yu, king of the martial arts. With incredible movements, lightning fast hands, he can handle anything, no matter how deadly. Wang Yu never uses a double because no one can do what he does. Don't miss this spectacular film packed with explosive action and ending in the most exciting battle ever seen. Blood of the Dragon. There'll never be another like it. Rated R. Well, we were talking about Mark and myself before you jumped on, Jeff, about just like some of the old approaches back in the day to get audiences in and different kind of business trends in in the drive-in culture that people used. And we were talking about the difference between charging per person versus charging per car and how that kind of came about. Was Did that start as just a, a pure gimmick to get people a better deal and get them in the gate? Yeah, it did offer people a better deal because, you know, when you say, well, it's a uh, pricing per car, well, they'll cram as many people they can in that car. Oh, yeah. And that, and not to be funny and uh, uh, not to be uh, a wise guy about it, but that means you're going to sell more popcorn and snacks too if you cram more people in a car. So that was the idea behind it. Okay, you charged, and that's what we did at the Mahoning for several years. When I first got there, second run theaters still existed, they don't today. But back then, second run theaters still existed, which meant you got the film maybe uh, six weeks after it was released, four to six weeks after the main run theaters were done with them. Then they went to second run theaters. So you're getting a film that's maybe six, eight weeks old. And it's like, oh, well, we can't charge full price. But hey, how about we charge $10 a carload? Boy, you can't beat that because, you know, if it's only two people, it's still only five bucks a piece. You can't beat it. They'll, they'll try to cram as many people in the car as they can. And then the concession stand makes out. Yeah. So it was really a great idea all the way around. And we did $10 per car load for, man, the first couple of years I was there, we did that. Right. I think we still get people who roll in who who are shocked that it's per person and not per car. And it's like, well, as long as I've been here, it hasn't been per car. Exactly. It's intermission time and it's fun time here at the Garland Road Drive-In Theater. Time for you out there to join us up here at the snack bar for plenty of Bay Street enjoyment. There's hot dogs, long and delicious with mustard and chili included, of course. Great big juicy hamburgers with all the trimmings, barbecue beef, steak sandwiches, grilled cheese sandwiches, the best ever. And you'll find Pepsi-Cola, Dr. Pepper, root beer, orange, grape, coffee, milk, or that delightful chocolate malt toddy here at the snack bar, too. Popcorn, a great big bag full, salty and crisp and crunchy, only 10 cents. Roasted peanuts done to a golden brown turn. Your favorite brands of candy, gum, cigarettes. Ice cream novelties of Eskimo pies, sundaes, sandwiches, and drumsticks. And your favorite flavors of snow cones, grape and strawberry. Don't forget now about those ice-cold drinks, corny dogs fresh made, popcorn, hot dogs, and ice-cold pickles. Be sure to drop by for lots of intermission time enjoyment, won't you? And right now, here's intermission time music. 
All right. So yeah, Jeff had to jump off of the call, but we're going to talk more with him on the next episode about some of the early days of the Mahoning. And as, as I remember it, the growth of our social media. At one point, there was a possible rebranding of the Mahoning that was going to happen, a different name for the Mahoning. Uh, so you guys have all that fun stuff to look forward to. Tune in next week. That's right. Tune in next week. And we are. We are. For shocking revelations. Now that we're coming in for a landing with this season, we got about two months left. We are focusing hard on the content in the off season, which we are going to have a plenty. And we are going to be getting more of the crew involved. We're going to be doing some more video stuff, trying to work some more segments. So stay tuned, as always, to Mahoning Drive-In Radio. But Mark, you teased us with a fun new addition to the show uh, the last time that we were all together with with Jeff about patrons being able to leave voicemails for us and voice messages to be able to tell their stories. Um, And I hear we actually have a fun one. We do. So we host this podcast on anchor.fm. Now you may be listening to this through Spotify or Apple podcasts or any number of places, but anchor.fm is where I upload the show to. And then that disseminates it, which sounds a little dirty, disseminates it. <laughs> it spreads it all over the place in, in, in into multiple ears. And on the anchor.fm page for us, uh, there's a button called message and you can leave a voice message. Now, anybody who tries this, let me know. I haven't tried it myself. We have one message here and it's about 59 seconds. I don't know if they limit you to how long your voice message can be or not. Um, I'm all for rambling, as you may understand if you've ever heard me talk. Uh, So if you want to leave us one message, multiple messages, however you want it, we would love to hear your stories of drive-ins. What is the local drive-in you went to growing up or currently go to? I know you can listen to this podcast, whether you've ever been to the Mahoning or not. We want it to be you know, for everybody who loves drive-in. So please do that and become part of the show again. And if, and if, and if it is 60 seconds and you leave us like 10, 60 second messages, I'll stitch together. They'll never know. So we have our first from Anthony Italiani and uh, I'm just going to play it and then we can discuss. Hi, my name is Anthony and I've been coming to the Mahoning with my wife, Jess, since 2016 when we heard about it from our friends, Joe and Dez. The Mahoning was the first drive-in that I attended as an adult, but I was fortunate enough to grow up in a few miles, both the Bethlehem drive-in and the Starlight drive-in in Easton. My favorite memory uh, of the drive-in was seeing Jurassic Park when I was eight with my brother, cousin, and uncle at the Bethlehem drive-in. There was a long line of cars waiting to see Jurassic Park, and as we got to the ticket booth, the ticket seller came out to announce the show was sold out, and the remaining cars would need to go home. My uncle turned to us in the back seat and told us to cry. In the back seat, all three of us began to fake cry. My uncle called the ticket seller over and said, look, I've got three crying kids in the car. You got to let us in. For whatever reason, the ticket seller had mercy on us and we were able to get in and see the movie. Years later, I was able to relive that experience by seeing Bite Night at the Mahoney. Now, my question is, when he rolled up to our <laughs> gate, <laughs> did, he, did he burst into tears saying he didn't have any money? <laughs> Clearly, that's his move. That's He's so great. That's such an amazing story. And man, I can I can really relate to that story. And I think I told it on the podcast about trying to go see Jurassic Park uh, twice before I was able to get in at the drive-in. That was my so, man, experience. that is awesome. That was my experience with Return of the Jedi. When Return of the Jedi came out, it was playing at my local theater, which was a strip mall, three-screen theater. And I think yeah. we, we made 
at least three attempts before that line was short enough to think we could get in. Amazing. Come on. That's a memory that'll last a lifetime. As you guys know it, those are Jeff's hometown drive-ins for sure. Right in the sweet spot. We'll have to ask the lot guys when we have them on if that's a good tactic. (laughs) If you cry, we're sold. I I wouldn't be surprised. The level of passion and and pleading that we've had for some sold out shows, if we can make exceptions for people. (laughs) I don't know if anybody has just rolled up and and, and turned to their kids and said, okay, kids. We, we we rehearse this at home and go that is that is magic that is perfect i may even take that i'm working on a fun little storybook idea called my first drive-in and uh it's something that i'm working on with you know gene gene beretta he's gene's uh, on possibly illustrating it and that is a perfect angle man that is a, a belly laugh of a story right there that's perfect the technology to just play that clip right now is playing it off my laptop and my mic was live and i was biting my lip to not laugh at that moment in the story <laughs> how cool man yeah i hope more fans jump in on that because that is a that's a really fun aspect to the show where you guys can get involved and share your fun stories and your crazy experiences and I say it, my my favorite part of running this business is is kind of the aftermath of it all, is going on to the social medias after a crazy show and just seeing all the pockets of crazy fun that people were having under this crazy umbrella that is the moaning. We're all usually so. too busy working to see what goes on on the lot. I mean, it's not like we don't pay attention to what goes on a lot, but I mean, we're working. So most weeks afterwards, I'm vicariously re-experiencing an event through the photos and videos of my friends and everybody else who attended because you can't be everywhere at all times to see the insane cosplayers or people who've decorated their cars or all that stuff. Or the Oh, it happens all the time. Crazy heat lightning off off to the side of the screen that we had during Camp Blood where it was this, it looked like a strobe light in the sky. The same thing happened at one of our Patreon screenings. It was like no thunder. Yeah just like strobe lights in the clouds, just amazing stuff that people capture. So yeah, we, we love seeing The nutty thing to me is the, the fact that, you know, uh, groups of people will come and we'll never know that they were there. It's like, I was there the whole time. You were there the whole time. It's like the lot's big, but the fact that we can just totally go a night without passing, passing, crossing paths or seeing each other is, is just wild, but speaks on it. And we're both relatively uh, uh, jovial and friendly and, and out and about during the shows. You know, there are times where we're both, you know, in the snack bar or one of the one of the booths. But it's it, to not see people, you know, or, or people who were there or some amazing costumes. It's like, was my head in the sand all weekend? You're like, that happened? Wow. Yeah, that's super fun stuff. I'll never forget for our John Waters event, somebody dressed up in the costume that's just the big vagina from neck (laughs) to crotch. And she was dancing in front of our photo op. And I was like, how did I miss that? (laughs) A walking, a a vagina with legs, just. (laughs) I often refer to you in very, very, you know, friendly terms as Big V. As the vagina with legs? No, no. I, because you know, there's little Virgie and I, I say Big V and Little V, and apparently there was a different Big V there that night. <laughs> oh, I love it. Good times. Uh, but yeah, speaking of good times, I wanted to let you guys know tons of amazing opportunities for you guys to come and uh, jump in at the Madness at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. 
check out all the fun uh, dates at MahoningDIT.com. And uh, like Mark said at the beginning of the show, support the Patreon like crazy. Support the podcast like crazy. We have some uh, some really fun stuff coming up in October and some really, really big plans for the end of the year and moving into uh, this year that hopefully you guys will all jump on board with. So more to come on all that stuff. Mark, you got anything else? Should we wrap this puppy up? I say it's time to say goodnight. All right, baby. Well, we will see you guys next week. Mark, I will see you this weekend. Always. Um, and hopefully we see you guys this weekend as well at the theater. On that note, Jeff, take it away, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field. And most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night and God bless you.